0: Well, tonight we're going to be looking at the letter to James, or letter by James, and so if you uh, want to follow along in your Bible, good luck, let's start with a word of prayer right now. Father God, we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus, that you would open your Word, and at the same time, Lord, you'd open our hearts and our minds, that we might receive its testimonies into our hearts, that you'd stir us, you'd motivate us, Lord, that we might even be thrilled by your truth. We pray, Lord, you'd help us in this time that we spend together, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, the letter James is probably the oldest letter in the New Testament. It may be uh, next to the Gospels. It may be the oldest book that we find there. And, and it's an interesting because there are a number of people who are named James in the New Testament. Uh, James, the brother of John, who is the apostle, uh, he was executed in Acts chapter 12. There's a fellow referred to as James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the apostles with whom we know almost nothing about. Uh, and then there's, uh, of course, James, the brother of Jesus, who actually is the guy who is mentioned the most frequently. And it's most likely that he is the one who actually is the writer of this letter. In fact, he's the only one that we have some pretty significant archeological evidence for his life. Some years ago, there was quite a controversy involved in it, but this ossuary, which is ossuary means a a bone box. uh, When you see these in real life, Uh, they look like they're a coffin for a baby. They're really small, but what they are is they're the length of the femur, the longest bone in your body because uh, when the burial customs in the second temple period was that they took the body, they washed it, they rubbed all sorts of spices on it to make it uh, so it didn't, the odor didn't drive the family away from, uh, from the tomb, literally. And then they would wrap it in, in cloths and put it in a bed, a stone bed within a tomb. Well, after about 12 months, the body, the flesh has decayed away and all that's left is dust and bones. They would go back with one of these boxes, they would collect the bones and they would put them into the box, usually with the name of the person chiseled on the side of the box. This is cut out of limestone. And then they would put this in a, a little, basically a niche on the wall. So if you went into the family tomb, you would see all these niches and there would have been boxes in every one of those giving you the entire family uh, buried together. It kind of follows the concept of the Old Testament where it said that when persons died, that they were gathered to their fathers. It's the idea that the bones are all gathered together in one place. Well, this particular box was unique because what it had lit- written on the side of it was James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. And that's quite unique because n- there are no other examples of the brother's name being mentioned. So it tells us that the brother of this j- individual was quite prominent and well known. Statistically, statistically the chance that there would be uh, someone else who had the same father and the same brother is relatively small. And so uh, many scholars came to the conclusion this has to be the James who was the writer of this particular letter. Aren't you glad that you came just for that tonight? I mean, anyway, um, but essentially we know that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Mark 6 tells us that when Jesus came to Nazareth and the people questioned, saying, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, the Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters among us? So that uh, the idea that Jesus didn't have any brothers or Mary had no other children after Jesus isn't something that really stands up in the biblical text very well. Uh, this would have been a half-brother because Jesus had a different father than, uh, than James did. Jesus was, uh, was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, James was conceived by Mary and Joseph. So, uh, but they would have grown up together as Jesus would have been his elder brother. One of the things we know about him, it's interesting, because prior to Jesus' resurrection, we know that James and also his other brothers did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, um, we find in chapter 7 of John's Gospel that they're they're, uh, chiding Jesus about, you know, you should go to Jerusalem and make yourself known and so forth, because John writes, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So that when you find that you come to Christ and you go and share the gospel with your friends and family and they're not receptive, don't feel bad about it because the prophet is without honor, Jesus said in his own land. Uh, Many times, the hardest people to share the gospel with after you're saved are the people who are closest and know you the best. Uh, They are the ones who are probably the most skeptical because they know you the best. So (laughs) that's the sad truth of the matter. But nonetheless. We find that after the resurrection, and we're not given the particulars, but we're told in 1 Corinthians 15:7 by Paul that, that Jesus appeared to James. We're not giving any other particulars about what that represented other than that James saw Jesus raised from the dead. And then the next time we encounter him, we find that he has somehow been promoted to the position of the elder or the bishop, if you prefer, really essentially the presiding pastor of the entire Jerusalem church, or I'd say churches, because there would have been more than one church in the city, and he was pretty much the presiding pastor. In fact, Paul makes reference to him three times in the letter to the Galatians, when he's talking about James, the Lord's brother, he refers to in verse 19 of chapter one, chapter two, he, he talks about James as being one of the pillars of the church, along with Peter and John and other of the, of the apostles. We, the next time we run into, and those in Acts chapter 15, really is a consequence of the events Paul describes in Galatians, where the question really came up as to how do we deal with an unexpected phenomenon in the church? there was a large influx of individuals who previously had not been considered by most of the Christians as being candidates for salvation. They were Gentiles. So that keep in mind when we're looking at the period of the uh, late 30s, early 40s AD, the church was predominantly, was basically Jewish. The only convert we read about being a non-Jew was Cornelius and he's but he is, a, he is a, a Latin, but he is also going to the synagogue. And it's very likely that after his conversion, he probably continued to attend the synagogue So that the idea that someone be a Christian and not be a Jew was something that had been fairly unthinkable. In fact, Peter, if you recall, got into a lot of trouble when he got back to Jerusalem because he had actually gone in and had dinner, partaken of food with Gentiles, which was also forbidden because you could never know what a Gentile had put into his food. He may have eaten something unclean. So there, there could have been clams in there. There could have been, you know, bacon. I mean, in my case, I hope there's bacon, you know. <laughs> but essentially that would defile you or even the way they prepared it wasn't according to kosher rules. And so there were all sorts of stipulations. Just, so a Jew, an Orthodox Jew would never eat meal with a Gentile, it, it, especially if he couldn't control how the food was being prepared. So it was a very it was a tension that we may find a, a little bit difficult to grasp but the best way I can put it is today in the American church a lot of times when people come into a congregation from a different culture say you're you're in a place where you have basically white Anglo-Saxon Protestants and suddenly Hispanic people start showing up or Asian people start showing up or or people of 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 basically different socioeconomic differences That oftentimes, rather than rejoicing and welcoming the difference, there's a, a barrier, a cultural resistance that arises. And that's essentially what we had in the Jewish church, except it was even more severe because it involved an entire necessity to conform yourself to Judaism. And so this led to a great controversy. That's what Acts chapter 15, we find that Paul, uh, uh, the leaders coming to a council in Jerusalem, the first time the church had a general council as we would refer to it. And it was James, who the elder of the church, who was the one who really passed the deciding position that they would allow the Gentiles to follow Jesus without requiring them to be obedient to the law. It's believed by most scholars that this letter was written prior to this controversy because of some of the comments that are made. In in other words, they weren't having to deal with the problem of what do we do with the Gentile converts up to this point in their history. Uh, Josephus, the historian, first century historian, tells us that Uh, about James. He actually describes the martyrdom of James. And he tells us that right around 62 AD, while there was a change of Roman governors, and there was an absence of a a presiding governor over Judea, that the Jews uh, and the priests took advantage of that, arrested James, and basically because of his uh, role in, in the church, and commanded him to deny Jesus or die. And they took him up to what was called the pinnacle of the temple, which refers to the steepest part of the wall where it drops about 150 feet from the top of the wall down to the ground below. And they said, you know, either repent or or say that Jesus isn't the Messiah, isn't God, or we'll push you off. And he refused to do so. They pushed him off. He did not die from the fall. And it says a, a fuller, which is a, a guy who has, they had these large wooden paddles that they would use to whiten cloth with dye and water and boiling and so forth. He went over it and, and clubbed James and put him out of his misery. And so he died there in Jerusalem. Um, so it was a, it was a, a glorious ending in you know, a reality, and that his remains would have then been treated in the way that we saw with the ossuary box I described. Uh, again, most authorities date the writing of this book before 49 uh, AD, before the, uh, because it was right around 49 AD when the Jerusalem Council took place, and uh, undoubtedly it was written from the city of Jerusalem, because we have no record of James traveling outside of that area. In other words, the idea that the, the apostles were traveling and itinerating like Paul and Peter did was not the norm for people in the ancient world. Usually you pretty much stayed in the locale where you were born, you grew up, you lived and died. And if you got more than a few hundred miles from your home, then you were a person who was widely traveled. Paul traveled probably around 10,000 miles, mostly on foot in his lifetime. That's what we know of. It may have been significantly more of that. So that was more unusual, more likely that James would have been in Jerusalem and spent the the entirety of his adult life after his conversion in the city. Now, who is it written to? Well, he begins in verse 1 by telling us, "...to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations." And some people said, well, the 12 tribes is basically a, a reference to, uh, you know, kind of a spiritualized reference to all believers. But in this case, it's probably quite literally. He's talking to those who are part of Israel, Jews, particularly says they're living among the nations, which is an aphorism basically for Gentiles. So he's talking about what we call the diaspora, which probably loosely translated would mean the dispersion. There were Jews living all over the Roman world. In fact, uh, Up until about 10 years ago, there were more Jews, had been more Jews living outside of Israel than lived in it uh, since the the collapse of the city in 70 AD by the Romans. So the idea of Jews being all over the ancient world, many of them would go because of trade and business opportunities, but also some had been captured, taken as slaves and sold to different parts of the world, as was the case of the ancestors of the apostle Paul. Paul. So, um, there's, there's undoubtedly these, this is a Jewish congregation. He's writing to those who are believing Jews and, uh, and basically, uh, we see this in the letter itself in terms of the way it's composed. Because even when it talks about in chapter 5 about the order of the church, you know, if anybody is sick, let them call for the elders and come and pray for them. It describes a very simple organizational structure, which actually, when we get into Paul's letter, it becomes significantly more complex where you have deacons and elders, and it talks about a variety of different circumstances, this would have been very much like the synagogue. In fact, there are those who suggest that even the language that James uses is referring more to synagogue life than it does to uh, what we'd find later on in the house churches, which characterized the Gentile churches. The letter itself, its structure is, is very Jewish. Fifty-four Proverbs, if you will, is the way that's written. It's written in proverbial form. It's kind of like often referred to as the New Testament Proverbs. Uh, and you have 54 proverbial commands in 108 verses. So basically, you have a command every two verses. <laughs> I mean, there's something that do this, do this. It's very clip in the way it's written because there's, uh, it's, it's just a, a very almost staccato type of way that it's, it's written. And there's also so many numerous references to the Old Testament. We talks about Abraham, Rahab, Job, Elijah, uh, references to 21 different Old Testament books. Even we find what's called the Great Shema. The Great Shema in, in, in Hebrews, or excuse me, in Deuteronomy chapter four, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our Lord is one God. Uh, that's, that's the prayer that Israel prays. The, the, and it, it refers to the oneness of God. Here in verse 19 of chapter two, James makes a statement: You believe that there is one God. This is a, to a pretty clear reference to that Shema, something that drew the Israelites together in their idea of monotheism—that there is one God. This set them out and made them unique from every other culture that existed uh, in the Roman world at that time. And it's interesting; it's one of the reasons why they were often referred to as atheists. Uh, and that may sound strange to us, but the Romans often called Christians and Jews atheists because they believed in one God. In other words, you're denying all the other gods and saying they're not real, so that would make you an atheist, where in fact, you know, it's not really an accurate description, but nonetheless, that was the feeling that was there. Uh, One commentator made an interesting thing about the way the book is written. He said it's, it's it's as much a lecture as it is a letter. And what he means by that is that these short, simple sentences in this vivid and very concrete language was undoubtedly written as a circular letter. In other words, it it was meant to be read and passed on Uh, amongst various congregations. And as was common with the Jewish tradition, when they received a letter like this, many of them would write it down. They would make their own copy. They had Hebrew scribes who would copy it down and then preserve it so it could be read and reread as a book of instruction. And that's how many of the New Testament books were passed into uh, our canon or our New Testament writings. There were certain letters that were preserved and and viewed by the early believers as having a a powerful and sacred quality. And that became really the designation that as time went on, they took on more and more value as being uh, instructional for the church. But the question I think that probably is more interesting than a lot of the factoid stuff I've just thrown out at you is why James was motivated to write the letter. He doesn't give us any indication like we find in often in Paul's letter of controversies and conflicts and questions that were taking place, but we can kind of tease it out a little bit because one thing is very clear. He's very, very concerned about empty faith, or I would say that faith that has no substance to it, people who are confessing but they're not really converted. We often talk about people who are convinced, but they're not converted. Or sometimes in the church, you have people who have been Christianized, but they've never really been converted. So you grow up in the church, and you hear all the church information, and you have this intellectual concept or grasp of the facts of the faith. But you have really, really never transferred it to the place where it becomes something that you live out, that you use as a governing principle behind your day-to-day life. And it appears that, that James was struggling with this. And I think it's probably very possible that it's n- his situation at this point was not unlike what we find in the church even today. There were undoubtedly Jewish believers, or at least people who professed to be believers, But when it came to actually applying the teachings of Jesus to their day-to-day life, they were more Jewish than they were followers of Jesus. And this becomes really the emphasis. It's not just simply living a moral life, or it doesn't have that. In fact, sometimes people say it has this tone about morality, but it really isn't about reality. Morality, it's more about being a follower of Jesus. Are you really living out faith in Jesus? Because That will take you far beyond a legalistic or moralistic approach to life. There are things that God induces us to do or convicts us not to do, not because there's necessarily a rule that says you can or can't do something, but rather God convicts you and says, is that the most loving thing to do? So we see that in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, I know that it's written that you shall not commit murder, But Jesus takes it far beyond the principle of murder and says, but if you you hate your brother, isn't that essentially where murder finds its root? (laughs) It starts there and then it grows into an action. And he says, I know that the scripture says you shall not commit fornication or adultery, but if you look on a woman lustfully, isn't that essentially the same thing in your heart you've already transgressed? So the principle that we find in the New Testament is not one that says, hey, the law has no application and we can live this libertine lifestyle and do whatever we want. No, it changes the reason why we do what we do, that I'm not doing it because there's a code that tells me I can or can't, but rather it's something that is growing out of a relationship with God, something that God has impressed upon my own heart and so it's the kind of thing that God is saying: if you love me, you you will do this, and if you love me, you won't do that. So that uh, that's why I often tell uh, young ladies many times: I'm saying, when a when a man says, "If you love me, you'll sleep with me," my response is that if he loves you, he would never ask that of you. Now I hear it kind of goes both ways today, but the simple fact is that if you really care about somebody, you're going to make those decisions that are most concerned for what is best for the other person not simply that just gratifies my interest. And that's why love has this powerful impact upon the way that we live out our life. So great emphasis is put on, the way I phrase it is, having an authentic lifestyle that matches or proves the authenticity of your faith. Now, having said that, there are some people who have taken issue with the letter to James. Uh, Not the least of them was Martin Luther, he later changed his mind, but early on he referred to it as, quote-unquote, a right strawy epistle. In other words, by straw he means he's quoting Paul's 1 Corinthians 3 statement where he says, wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up. And he's basically saying, this can't be biblical because he was discovering the grace of God and salvation by faith alone. And he just saw this letter as being full of just works and expression of Judaism, um, Later on, he changed his opinion towards the end of his life and decided that, well, maybe it isn't so bad after all. In fact, one of the things that we find is that Paul as well, and and Peter and all the other New Testament writers put this balanced emphasis saying that we are saved by faith, but if that faith is genuine, it cannot help but express itself in how we live our life. You know, it's like that old song they used to sing in the church, if you're saved and you know it, your life will surely show it. Um, I think that's actually pretty good theology. I've had people tell me, ah, it's not good theology. And I just say, well, shut up. And anyway, but I think, it's, a good, I think it's, it's good theology. I mean, that if I am saved and, and I really am saved, it's going to express itself because one of the simple observations that we all make about life is that faith always produces actions. Now, the question becomes, what are you putting your faith in? If I'm putting my faith in my own point of view, my own opinions, my own feelings, my own thoughts, well, I'm going to act in accordance with what I think is the best choice, the best decision. Well, the whole idea of coming to faith in Christ is where I've decided that he is the best choice, the best decision. That, As he declared of himself in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now, if I believe that he is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life, that cannot help but influence the way that my life is made, the choices that I make. And it's not that we are perfect in this, but over time you learn from personal experience, don't you? That obeying God is always the best the fastest and the safest and most prosperous and blessed way to live your life. And disobeying God always ends up where you don't want to be. It just always does. You, as, as Paul said to the Galatians, if you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. Now, how do you think Paul knew that? You know, we would like to say, well, he just was theologically blessed and he you know, understood these things, I have the strong suspicion that Paul knew that from personal experience. <laughs> that sometimes you give into the flesh and no, am I saying he was a fornicator? I don't know why we always think of that. No, but he may, yeah, I think Paul understood the issue of anger. I think uh, when I read about him and Barnabas, I think, you know, I could see him being a kind of difficult guy to get along with once in a while. At least that's my hope. <laughs> so I'm not alone. But it's, you know, it's, it's one of these things that we come to understand, and we realize that God is constantly convincing us and making an effort to convince us to trust Him, and as we trust Him, we always act in response to what we trust to be true. I mean, I think that's like one of the most obvious observations in life. Well, we find Paul saying things along the same lines. For example, in Galatians 5, 3 through 17, I won't read the whole passage, but he says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Now, is Paul teaching work salvation? No, he's talking about living a sanctified life once you've been saved. He says, rather serve one another in love... Live by the Spirit, he goes on and says, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit is is what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. So if the Spirit of Jesus is living inside of me, there's a conflict, which is the reason for most struggles and trials that we go through, and yet that battle is won increasingly as we learn to trust in the voice of God, trust in the truth of his word, and walk in faith and obedience to him. John says something very similar in in 1 John 2. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Now, he's speaking to us and saying, how do I know that I know God? Well, I would simply say for many of you, that's why you're here this morning or this evening. You're here because you care about what this book says. That's why you're here. I mean, you could be home doing something far more interesting like Uh, watching The Voice, I don't know if that's on, but you know, you could be watching, you know, one of your your favorite shows, I don't know, not versed enough to throw some out there, but anyway, uh, but obviously that's not a driving passion because you're here instead. And that's what he says, we begin to look and realize that we start making moral and ethical choices based upon what we know is congruent with His will and His commands. And then he goes on to say, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what, is, what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So that the idea of being a follower of Jesus becomes an increasing pressing passion in your life. That I want to be a follower of Jesus. That's how I want my life to be defined. Again, does that mean that we're saved by following Jesus? No. Does it mean that we're perfected at some point in our following Jesus? Absolutely not. I, I mean, I'm probably this far from perfect, but <laughs> my wife says, yeah, you're just that far. It's that close. <laughs> but, it's, but the simple reality is that when I wake up in the morning, I know in my heart that what I want to do today is to be a follower of Jesus, And when I come to the end of the day, if there are things that disappoint me in my day, it's where I failed to be faithful to that. I lost focus and I did something else. And that becomes really a defining characteristic so that when he says it, the person says, well, I know him but doesn't follow him and he's a liar. What he's talking about is as you look at a person's life and you see the the trajectory of their life, you see the history of their life. And you can tell that when there's a moment when you come to Christ, people looked at you and said, something's different. May not have said it immediately, and they may not even said it complimentary. But the point is, they're looking at something's changed now. You don't want to do the same things. So that I found when I tried to enlist my friends to get together and read the Bible in the park at six in the morning, which you could do in California, you know, I thought that would be this great spiritual experience. Uh, By the second day, I was the only one there. You know, it wasn't a thrilling moment for them, apparently. They didn't seem to enjoy sitting in a circle reading the Bible. But to me, this was the sweetest thing I'd ever experienced. So you understand that these are changes that we recognize in ourselves. Again, I go back to the fact that you're here this evening is testimony that you desire to move in that direction. That's evidence of the Spirit of God being in you, evidence of being born again. We're talking about the person who says, yeah, I know God, but when you look at them, it's like there's nothing about them. There's nothing about their life that you would say, well, that's distinctly Christian or distinctly a believer. Now, I, I mean, my own dear mother, I uh, love her to pieces, but I mean, she was a religious person her entire life, raised in in the church and led, she was choir director at every place I ever lived and did. I mean, she was always doing religious stuff and she also did a lot of other stuff. But, But she'd been here in this church for about a year before she actually received Jesus. She had never been born again prior to that. And so, I mean, I could look at her life and say, you know, the things that she valued, the things that she pursued, the things that were most important to her were not the things that would drive the passion of a believer. And I think that when, you, once you, when she knew Jesus, there was this change in her life. The things that mattered to her were different. And when she was dying, heaven was the most important thing, and the anxiousness to get there was pretty inspiring. But that's the simple reality of, that he's, James is getting at here, and this is why it's, it's not legalism. He's speaking to believers and saying, let's not lose sight of the fact that if we're truly followers of Jesus, this has an effect upon the way we live and act out our life. Now, the key verse, I mean, it's hard to pick because this is actually seven different times James repeats this statement where he says, for example, in 2.26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And again, it's basically a a summary of everything that I just got done saying. So let's break it down into a, a simple outline. And I have to confess, outlining the book of James is probably the hardest of any book in the New Testament. Because it's like the book of Proverbs, which is the hardest book to outline in the Old Testament. Um, its uh, I taught the book of Proverbs once some years ago, and if I ever do it again, I'm going to do it differently. I just can't figure out how I was going to do it differently. Because in one in one chapter, you can have half a dozen different themes so that you really almost end up going taking one couplet or passage and teaching on that and then moving on to the next one, which makes the book very long. And as you know, I don't like long studies through books. I like to keep it under five years. But anyway, um, but the best I can do is i broke broken these two sections as there's, the, he begins by talking about having an authentic faith and then having an authentic lifestyle as an expression of that faith. And what does that look like? Well, it's interesting to me because he starts off in, in verse 2 of chapter 1 by saying to us, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What the heck? <laughs> what have you been drinking, dude? I mean, uh, i got to confess, I, I still haven't reached that point. I still haven't gotten there. I, 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 every time some, some trial that is especially Uh, painful. Uh, There's nothing in my mind that says, I'm going to count this as pure joy because I'm not mature enough, I guess, in my faith to look, to be able to see beyond the, the thing that's coming at me and to begin to say, God, you are going to amaze me by what you're going to do with this problem. Now, granted, he always does. I'm always blown away how God can take terrible situations and transform them into things for glory. And I believe that one day I'll get to a place where something terrible will happen. I'm going, I can hardly wait to see what Jesus will do. I'm going to decide right now. Just think about it. How we but <clears throat> I'm still a work in progress, I'm afraid. A slow learner. But why does he say that? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that if I have an authentic faith, part of the evidence of that is I'm going to go through trials. I'm going to go through difficulties. I love what Dave Roper said one time. He said, uh, when you tell people that the road is going to be rough, when it it turns out to be rough, they know they're on the right road. (laughs) And that's kind of the way the Christian life is. I mean, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have troubles. You're going to have difficulties. Jesus said, in this world, you will have troubles. But he says, take heart, I've overcome the world. He doesn't say, take heart because I'll make all the troubles go away. No, he says, take heart because I have overcome the world. And one of the things I've discovered is that the world that we live in is designed by God to disappoint and disillusion, because it's only when we have been disappointed by life and we've been disillusioned by people that we become desperate enough to truly seek God, that we get to the place where we want Him more than we want what we were pursuing previously. It's only when you make a lot of money and you realize that you're more miserable now and have more problems now than you ever had when you had no money that you become disillusioned with that process and you desperately fall on God and say, God, what's the answer? Where's the solution? So James says, I want you to understand that this is an expression of authentic faith is that you're going to have many different kinds of trials and struggles. Uh, Peter put it very simply, didn't he? He said, "When when you go through fiery trials, don't act as if something strange has happened to you like why am i going through this now i just say that theoretically cuz i know none of you ever say that why am i going through this <laughs> to which heaven answers why not <laughs> why not you better you than somebody else you know that's the whole point is that if difficulties come into our life they're there because god allowed them to be there and he allowed them to be there because this is what you and i need and i just you know you and I like to throw a little bit of tantrum, a little tizzy fit, but eventually we come to that place, do we not, where we simply say, God, do what you need to do, and I'll just sit here and, and, and uh, wait until the change has taken place. But what it, the reason he goes on to explain is that what it does is as we persevere through those things, what comes as a result is spiritual maturity. In verses three and four, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, you know, it's, it's like anything else, like building a muscle. The more you do it, the stronger you get. I have this great route I run on today. I got to wear shorts today. Man, I'm in third heaven with the sun shining. I thought, oh, man, But it, it's a really a great run. The first half of the run is wonderful. I, I live on a hill, and I run all the way down to the bottom of the hill. And then I get to run about a half a mile along the a front of a beautiful river with, you know, it's just, I mean, we got geese. we got turkeys. we got deer. Those long rigged rats. we got, we got stuff all this stuff. It's a great place to be. But then I have to get home. And it's all uphill <laughs> all the rest of the way. And it's, you know, I, but I, one of the things I discovered long ago that when I first started running it, I'd run, i stop, <laughs> walk, walk for a while. And, and, and eventually you find that your strength increases and you find yourself running up the hills. That's basically the dynamic of trials. Trials are making you run life uphill. And what happens is your endurance grows, your ability to persevere in trials increases, which is why oftentimes the trials get even bigger. But he says perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. God is invested in the maturity of your faith. God is invested in the maturity of your faith. So God, what are you doing? He says, I'm making you mature. I'm growing you up in your face. Chuck Swindoll said something today. My wife and I were listening to, and he, I mean, I don't mean to be offensive, but he says, I've never known a young person who has wisdom. And I thought, what did he mean by that? And he went on and explained, he says, the reality is wisdom comes from painful experience. you got to live long enough to have enough painful experiences to begin to get kind of wise. And that's, it's what it, wisdom is nothing else but insight into life experiences that matures us and gives us the ability to speak authoritatively about the way that God works. And that's why he says that thirdly comes wisdom in verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. That in the process of going through those things, we become wise. Now, some of you are sitting there shaking your head and you're going, boy, that, that is right. Because it used to be theoretical, now it's tried and proven. Now I can speak from my own experience. I I went through this and I know exactly what you're talking about. And you can begin to advise other people. But also it leads, he tells us in verse 9, to humility. Uh, I love wisdom, don't like humility much. Uh, He says, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. It's an interesting idea. He says, God holds people who are humble in the highest positions. Isaiah 66, 2, who is the man that God can't take his eyes off of? The man who is humble and broken and lives in reverent fear of breaking his word. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's the guy that God looks at. You and I, oftentimes, we look at ourselves and think, well, you know, I'm, I'm just me, and God looks at it and saying, you know, I, that's why I like you. God loves the honesty that that it comes from humility. And so he says, you know, you should take joy in that so that you're going to find that one of the things that trials do is it humbles you, doesn't it? I mean, you haven't finished a trial unless you've been humbled by it, and you think in that moment of humility, well, this is evidence of my failure of the trial. No, the trial has accomplished the very thing that God wants it to accomplish, because when you're humble, what you do is you trust in God's advice, which makes you look wise in the eyes of other people. But the truth of the matter is, my favorite definition of grace this week, I'll probably use it for the next six months. But grace is the greatness of God flowing through my incompetence. You know, and when God's greatness flows through your incompetence, it results in making you look like you have something going for you. But you know, and I know, that wisdom, that capability, that insight didn't come from you. It's not native to you. This is the expression of the Holy Spirit of God flowing through you. And humility is the thing that recognizes that and doesn't lose sight of it. That doesn't, you know, like uh, Dave Wilkerson once said, he says, flattery will never hurt you as long as you don't suck it in. If you do, it'll kill you. <laughs> but it's, it's like a noxious poisoning. But he says, as long as you don't suck it in, but the moment you begin to suck it in, you know, somebody comes up to me and says, oh, pastor, that was the most amazing sermon I ever heard. I, I even caught angels looking from heaven trying to catch a phrase, you know, and, and you know, I just go... <sighs> <laughs> you, just, you just ruin me for the rest of the day you know? God's got to beat me into a pulp in order to get me back to earth well you know it's, you, you, you learn that experience you learn it's not me it's God that just did that that just came out and that's, he says that's where the blessed life comes in verse 12 he says "Blesses is the man who perseveres under trials because when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life that God promised to those who love him In other words, he's saying this is kind of a lifetime journey. But he says, that's the blessed man, the man or woman who has stood the test, persevered under trial. And then he says, basically, because then you begin to have clarity, spiritual clarity. In verse 13, he says, each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he's dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. In other words, you begin to understand what the real dynamics are about day-to-day living. That there's an enemy who wants to tempt me, and his desire is to draw me away from God. You see, we often think that the devil hates us. Well, he does, but that's not his motivation. His primary motivation isn't to destroy you because he hates you. What he really wants you to do is to hate God in the same way that he does. He wants to induce you, tempt you into beginning to accuse God. And to be bitter, again, God, how can you allow this to come in my life? And this isn't fair. And if you love me, you wouldn't. You're beginning to talk like somebody who doesn't love God. And that's what Satan wants. He wants you not to love God. And so that's where temptation comes. Because what James says, you have to understand that what really gets you in trouble is when you know that you have a desire that isn't pleasing to God and you give in to it, it's your fault. It's not God's fault. You did this to yourself. And being able to take that kind of responsibility yourself ourselves is critical to effectively overcoming temptation. But that's why he goes on in verse 17 to say, essentially, this is really the key to the authentic life. Every good and perfect gift is from above, he says, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. In other words, what do you have, Paul said, that God didn't give you? Everything comes from Him. He, he is the provider of it all. And he says, who does not change with shifting shadows. He's not like, like everything else in this world, but you never know from minute to minute. You know, it's like listening to certain politicians. You never know what's going to come out of their mouth. You know, it's, God isn't like that. He isn't a moving target that you have to try to figure out where is he coming from this time. No, he's consistent. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says, and he chose to give us birth. We might say new birth through the word of truth, that we might be the kind of first fruits of all he created. This is what God's doing. He he wants to make something new out of you, something that wasn't there before, the transformational effect of the Spirit of God, that your life begins to live, be lived in a different way. Well, what is that different way? That's where the second part comes in. I call it the authentic lifestyle. The first thing he says is, I think, is that you become teachable. Verse 19 of chapter one, he says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And then he goes on to say, and slow to anger. But again, in verse 22, he adds, do not be merely, merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, do what it says. So the first thing we have to say is if I'm going to mature in the faith, I have to be somebody who can be taught. Is God able to teach me? Will I listen to what he has to say? And sometimes we have trouble because God doesn't always speak to us from the same vessels that we prefer. You know, I'll listen to this person because I know they're a spiritual giant, but I won't listen to this person uh, because they're like me. And you realize that God speaks to us through all sorts of interesting channels and places. Uh, You know, I found that oftentimes the Holy Spirit speaks very, very clearly to me through my wife. And I'm always excited and open to hear what she has to say. Always. (laughs) Always. <laughs> but that's a simple reality, isn't it? I mean, we, sometimes we can become defensive and, and unresponsive. I'm talking about somebody else, certainly not myself. But, but God, you know, are you listening to what God is saying to you? Are you open to hearing what He has to say? The secondly, it leads to a self controlled life. In verse, uh, He goes on and says that we need to be slow to become angry because He says, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. As I was thinking about that this, today, I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I cannot remember a single incident in my life where I've allowed anger to take control of my thoughts and my behavior that ever turned out good. I can't think of a single one. And that's, that's essentially, I don't know why I'm so, so coming to such a point of epiphany as I was thinking about that, because that's exactly what he said. <laughs> but he shows how that sometimes you don't believe it. And sometimes we can rationalize and justify things like anger or other behaviors. When he says, but you don't understand, what you really have to do is look at what is the effect? What is the actual, the fruit of that? And he says, it, it just will never produce the things that God wants. In fact, he says, therefore, he goes on to verse 20, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you. It's the only time Paul, he talks about morality, in fact, in the whole book. And then he goes on, he says, if anyone considers himself religious and does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Now, he's not saying that you need to be mute. Some people think that that means, well, we just sit around and never say anything. But he's saying, you know, if the Spirit of God, out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. So when ugly things come out of our mouth, well, I'm sorry, there's an ugly thing in my heart. And we have to own that. But he says, that is one of the ways in which we measure our life. Then he goes on thirdly to saying that essentially, if we're living an authentic life, we live a merciful life. In fact, he says in verse 27 that religion that that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. It looks after the orphans and the widows in their distress and keeps oneself from being polluted by the world. In other words, it looks at people who are suffering and it views them... With the mercy of God, it doesn 't just simply say, "Well, they made bad choices." I mean, I, I had this conversation recently, but where, where the person that we were, we were we were trying to deal with has made bad choices, and they are their choices, and the consequences are their fault and I mean all, all that 's true. You got yourself into this midst, but I was trying to explain, but the but that 's not our problem that 's not how anything changes. Where it changes is when you begin to pray and guide and counsel that God would be merciful to their life. Because if you do that, what you're assuming is that somehow you're more innocent than they are. Your sin may be different from theirs, but it doesn't make you any better. And one of the things he says that when we know we're living an authentic life, it manifests itself in a merciful view and attitude towards other people. That he says we don't show favoritism. We don't show special attention in chapter 2 verse 1. We don't discriminate one person from another. He goes on to say that, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen the, those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? And finally, verse 13, he says, mercy triumphs. Over judgment God looks at mercy as being the victory so that you can't help but judge people I mean you can't you can't look at a situation in a person's life and not draw conclusions and that is a judgment and it's not the judgment that's the problem it's when judgment never gets triumphed or trumped i shouldn't use that word should I uh, should, <laughs> that judgment doesn't i'm looking for a word why is it They've stolen a good word. Anyway, the judgment, if it doesn't, if we don't allow it to be trumped by God's mercy, then we've, we've missed it. That's the whole point. It's not that we don't see that this person has made a train wreck of their life, but God wants us to be merciful to them and to, and to love them. That fourthly, he says, you, it also leads to this fruitfulness. And this is where we have in chapter 2, verse 14 through 26, over and over again, he says, uh, if a man claims to have faith but no deeds, uh, what good is it? Can such a man have faith in him? Uh, but someone who will say you have faith and I have deeds, show me your faith but without your deeds and I will show you my faith by my, what I do. As the body without the spirit is dead, so the faith without... Over and over again, he says that... The end of the day is that if the root is in Jesus, the fruit is going to come. The fruit always follows the root. And essentially, that we're going to be fruitful. Fifthly, we're going to be people who love peace rather than conflict. In other words, he says in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But then he says, but if you harbor bitter envy, I like that word harbor. You give bitterness or resentment, anger, whatever it is, you give it a place where it's kept safe in your life. If you harbor bitter envy, he says, um, and selfish ambition in your hearts, he says basically you're not a very wise person. In fact, he talks about a false kind of wisdom, which is really the shrewdness and the cleverness of man, but it's not the heart of God. Instead, he says that the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. In other words, it has no ulterior motives. Uh, Then it's peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. This is particularly interesting to me. In fact, this, in a way, is a certain degree of mea culpa in my own life. Because I see you can get to a place where you become known for what you're against. In fact, there's, there's, there's in today in the church. There's what's called they, these people call themselves discernment ministries, and it's interesting because they they quote passage like Ephesians five eleven where they say you know expose the uh, the unfruitful works of darkness and they say so they go around the church trying to find people that they can expose uh, their sins and. It's an interesting thing because knowing something of a few of these guys, they have their own set of sins that somebody could easily expose. And these websites become really just nothing else but gossip rags. I, I mean, I asked one of these guys one time, doesn't it occur to you that what you're really engaging in is gossip? No, I'm just exposing darkness. But it's a misreading of the text because, first of all, Ephesians 5.11 says, expose the unfruitful works of darkness. They're attacking many times people who maybe have made a mistake or an issue, but they're, they have fruit. They're not non-saved. And he says, we don't go and expose. In fact, later on in 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, he said that when the Lord comes, he will expose the hidden works of darkness. So he says, don't start judging them now. This is Paul's argument. Why are you passing judgment on us now? It's God's job to pass judgment and he will do it in his own good time. What you need to do is be a peacemaker. You need to be one who's trying to bring truth and peace and to, to build up. And I just found by my own experience that attacking and tearing people down doesn't really make them open to what you have to say. But sixthly, he says that if we are living an authentic life, it's a humble life. In fact, he says in, in, in chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves in, before the Lord and He will lift you up. And finally, it's also number 7, it's a prayerful life. Uh, back in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he said, you do not have because you do not ask. He says all sorts of things that people grow, grouse about and are struggling with, uptight about. He says, why don't you just ask God? I think one of the most amazing things to me is that God listens to me. When I pray to Him, He actually listens to me. And more than that, He answers Prayers. I mean, sometimes I confess to you, sometimes I think what I'm asking God is frivolous. And I think, God, you know, it's been, oh, so nice if you could just, but you know, I know, but it's cool, and He does it. And I just, I'm amazed that, that God is so anxious to respond to us. He's so anxious to draw us into that relationship with Him that He responds to us. And I know some of you are kind of jammed up because you can think, well, you know, I've got to make sure that I'm not being frivolous in my prayer life how do I know whether I am or not? Sometimes I think I've been really praying God's will and I realize, no, God doesn't want them out of that trial. He wants to keep them there until he finishes what he's doing with it. You know, God just deliver me from my financial difficulties. And then God comes back and says, well, when you learn not to spend more money than you make, then I'll deliver you. But until that gets grounded into your heart, I'm not going to take the pressure off. But therefore, he says in verse chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed, because the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Quite honestly, friends, I think that one of the, the greatest weaknesses of the church today, especially, I don't know, maybe it's true all over the world, but I just know in, in my experience with the church in this country, is that we have a hard time confessing our sins. We have a hard time being transparently honest with other people about what we're struggling with because we fear that people will judge us. And I think the fear is often founded. But nonetheless, the church is supposed to be a place where you and I can come at every season and juncture of our life and and sit down with other brothers and sisters saying, I'm really slammed. I'm really struggling. I'm really overwhelmed. I... And and what we have to understand is that honesty is the straightest path to holiness. And when James said, how am I going to get healed if I can't confess to somebody else saying, I need prayer. I need really prayer. To be able to say, you know, my heart was really broken, or I felt really betrayed, or I felt really, you know, treated improperly, and I'm bitter, and I'm I'm struggling with that. If you don't get real with that, you know what happens? You harbor it inside. And it begins to eat away at the inside of you. You need to confess it as sin and say, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? I remember early on in my marriage, you know, I was a spiritual giant in our home. And um, my wife started complaining about something, you know, just, you know, uh, I can't remember what it was, but it was obviously very unspiritual and very frivolous. And so I just addressed it immediately. I said, well, honey, you have to understand, the Word of God says, and I started reading a passage, she says, I did not share that with you. I know that already. <laughs> I know that's what the Bible says. I'm just telling you it because I'm struggling with it. This was like epiphany to me. Oh, okay. Then all I had to do was say, let's pray. And I could have saved myself sleeping on the couch all night. You know, I said, <laughs> I told my wife, I'm way over, but I told my wife today, I said, have you ever noticed when guys talk about their wife, they they, they give their wives a tone that their wives don't recognize? And then my wife said, you to you. <laughs> my wife said, Me, we don't talk that way. Did I just tell you too much? Am I in trouble now? <laughs> I, I think we'll pray now. <laughs> Man who can control his tongue. Anyway, Father God, I just love your word. I just... I, such a joy to read it, to study it, an honor to me, Lord, to talk about it, and to declare its its wisdom and its grandeur and its glory, to praise and to honor and exalt you, Lord, above every name that's mentioned heaven and earth. Thank you for your word. Let it just attach itself, as you have put it into us, Lord. Let it bear the fruit that truly not only honors you, but brings blessings into our lives, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you.